Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Here to help inspire more people to discover and love the arts. My name is Amelia Grant, the Community Partnerships Manager. In this episode, we bring to you our Connecting Conversations live event, Can We Be Artists, with our community collaborators, Headway East London. This episode explores what does it mean to be a creative in today's artistic landscape? Are arts organisations and institutions actually holding us back from creating a truly open, accessible and exciting arts world? Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you all here today. Um, as Amelia has said, my name is Feroza. I'm just going to tell you a bit about myself and um, a bit about Headway as well. So I'm Feroza. Before my brain injury, my background was in books and publishing. I had an AVM in 2007, which resulted in a stroke. AVM stands for arteriovenous malformation, which is a congenital condition, so I was born with it. I was paralysed on the right side and had to relearn how to walk, use my right hand again and relearn daily life skills. I joined Headway East London in 2008, where I could continue my rehab, accessing services like physio and occupational therapy. I'm now involved in many of the creative projects and I'm currently host and producer of Radio Headways London uh, monthly radio show. Just to give you a bit of background to Headway East London, we are a day centre in Hackney. Last year we supported nearly 800 brain injury survivors and their family members. It's a place where people can make friends, get involved in activities like art, cooking, therapies and support with advocacy, benefits and housing etc via our casework team. So, I'm now going to hand back over to Amelia. I am now going to introduce the wonderful Billy. Billy from Headway East London. I'm going to run around again. (laughs) Thank you, Amelia. Hello, everybody. Um, I've been assigned to tell you how um, we got Headway East London um, got to this position now. I've been going to Headway for nine years now, following a stroke and uh, complications with brain injury. Um, before then, I was a journalist at the Guardian newspaper. Um, but the most important thing that is, I was lucky enough to go to Headway after my brain injury, and um, became involved very quickly in the art studio and in other in other activities that the, that they do. And um, three years ago, Headway East London was just 
a kind of another uh, one of the many community groups on the Barbican's contact list. So we would be invited to exhibitions, we would be invited along to events and activities, and um, slowly over those three years, we came to, we started talking. We started to help run workshops, and we basically got more and more involved with the Barbican, and the Barbican kind of, I think they liked us, to be honest. I think they just like, I think they like the kind of people we are, so, the conversation, and that's the really important word tonight, conversation, the conversation just developed from there. It got deeper and deeper and longer and longer. And throughout lockdown, we carried on on Zoom. We carried on talking, and we don't stop talking. We just don't stop talking. So when you think about the key word for tonight, it is conversation. It's about, you know, conversations can begin, they can end, but some of them really do have to last a lifetime. So this is one of the conversations hopefully we're going to have tonight, is we're going to have a conversation that will go on forever and ever and ever, because these are big questions we're going to be asking. And so um, please, you know, give it a good shot, and uh, give the panellists a hard time. <laughs> and, um, and, wha- I, I, and what... Thank you, Bradley. Oh, shush. <laughs> And I just, want to, I just want to end by introducing, um, I don't know whether everybody knows about visual minutes, but some meetings and some events like this have really long, tedious, horrible written minutes at the end. We've got a fantastic artist, Ray, turn round. And we're, we've got a fantastic artist, and you can see Ray's work down there. She's working on it already. She'll be eavesdropping on our conversation. And um, please feel free to offer your points of view to Ray so she can document that in, 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 you know, in, 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 and she can illustrate them and you can see more of her work down by the front door there. So um, just enjoy that as well because she needs, she needs to be able to use to tell her things that she can, you know, put on that visual minute or whatever it's called. It's called a visual minute, I think. It sounds a bit, it's just, it's just a great way of doing it that isn't, you know, it's just an exciting way of, you know, seeing all that stuff that you spoke about, and so it gives it life. Anyway, that's enough of me. And it's enough. We're going to get on with the. Uh, have I got who do I hand back to? For Rosa? Yes? For Rosa, it's over to you again. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Billy. Okay, so. Um, so I'm. Just going to ask my panelists to introduce themselves and um, tell me where you're from and why you're here this evening. Um, Chris, would you like to start? Uh, I, I'm Chris Miller. I'm uh, I had a stroke about nine years ago, like Billy, uh, and I'm a member at Hebrew Eastern. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ali, Issa. Where I'm from could be a more complicated question than I'm going to answer, but anyway, I'm from London. Uh, I'm an artist, and I work for an organisation called Autograph, which is the Association of Black Photographers um, based in, uh, in Shoreditch, so very close to here. Uh, and yeah, I do various other things as well. I'm a lecturer at Goldsmiths University, and um, yeah, that's me. Cool, thank you. 
Good evening, everyone. My name is David Tovey. Um, I'm an artist. Uh, I'm an activist, campaigner, educator. Um, I work in the field of arts and homelessness uh, internationally. Um, and for a company uh, or charity even called Arts and Homelessness International, says it on the tin. Um, and I'm also the founder of the One Festival of Homeless Arts, which is an unfunded um, festival which has been running for four years now, um, which is based in London, Manchester, and recently Coventry. Um, so that's me. Thank you very much. Next yeah, person. I've got my own. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, um, I'm Kate Adams and I'm an artist and um, co-founder and director of Project Artworks, which is a, an organisation based in Hastings. And we work, uh, we're a neurodiverse collective, we've called ourselves for the last 18 months, but we might change that category. It's the tyranny of categorisation. Um, and, yeah, I'm not sure why I'm here. I think I'm here because uh, we work with uh, Autograph, and then that's how I met Chris, and Chris uh, suggested that uh, I come on the panel. And Project Artworks has been um, shortlisted for the Turner Prize this year, so that might be another reason. Round of applause, don't you think, for that? <laughs> um, hello, good evening. I'm Will Gompertz. I am... Um, in charge of the artistic and learning programs here uh, at the Barbican. I've been here for, for not very long, about four months. Before that, I was at the BBC as uh, its arts uh, editor correspondent. And uh, before that, I was at the Tate. So I know the hell you're going through <laughs> with the Turner Prize. Um, and uh, I've written a couple of light books about uh, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation and what comes from it. Thank you very much. So I'm going to um, fire away with the questions. Um, Chris Miller, my friend, yes. nice to see you. Um, my question to you is, um, why do you do art? Yeah, that's I think it, 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 where it's good starting point because uh, you could say what is art for but the danger with that is you just fear up your own background <laughs> in the process <laughs> so what's better to start is why do you do art and why I do art is art uh, I had a stroke about nine years ago, as I said, uh, and then I went to Headway uh, and um, Michelle, who's the manager of the uh, art studio there, well, I was looking around various places uh, and Michelle's yeah, I went into the art studio and Michelle said, uh, you can come here at any time and do art. Uh, and I, I, I said to her, I was 
been a science teacher and uh, other things. But, but I, I, when I went to secondary school, they said, you're, you're crap at art. <laughs> so I didn't do it anymore. Um, but Michelle is in the good way, very persuasive. So I, I started to do art. And what was a key thing for me was in the art studio, there was somebody called Errol. And that is understandably, after you had the stroke, you, you're a bit depressed and down, <laughs> to say the least. And that's how I felt. Well, when I went into the studio, uh, somebody called Errol was in a wheelchair with much greater speech issues than I had, for instance. Uh, but he was always singing and laughing and joking and doing art. Uh, 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 and I thought, why can't I be a bit like him? <laughs> uh, and that's a key thing for me. It's the staff are important thing, but what what's best is you learn more from similar people to you. Uh, but uh, the last thing I would say in, in this section, because I've got things to say about what is art for as well. But, uh, and the last thing I would say in this, uh, 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 so uh, Eleanor and Charlotte are here, uh, uh, who created the, uh, the buffet show. Uh, uh, and that was excellent. Uh, but in lots of ways, the buffet got things very right, uh, and it is quite essential in my thinking. Uh, uh, but but he, he, there's several things he got wrong, uh, and one of those, especially now, and. Uh, and the people that are involved now, it, it, people are involved in lots of... His idea when there was an individual art uh, 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 artist. Mm. I, uh, but in 1945, I'm not sure that existed. It certainly doesn't now. There's mm. lots of different uh, uh, collectives and art studios around, mm. like you're talking about. Um, and the way you do, you're doing it is not just as an individual, you're doing it as a mm. collective. Mm. Uh, uh, that's why I'm talking about Errol. Yeah. Thank you, and um, that's really interesting what you're saying. Um, I want to ask you about your own artwork as well, as I know that you take inspiration from 
um, famous paintings and you, you put yourself in those paintings. You replace, you almost replace um, those certain features of those paintings and put yourself in them. And, and show these two. Uh, yeah, so a bit like... one is what, Based yeah. on Botticelli's Venus. Venus, uh, exactly. So I'm not trying <laughs> to say here. <laughs> I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to say here that I'm beautiful like Venus. Mm. Uh, I'm trying to question the whole thing of blue beauty, which we'll mm. talk about later on. Yeah, and that's what I yeah I kind of wanted to understand more about that. What what that means to you? Because you have this one, and you uh, have the screen. Perhaps I'll say more later. You want to say? Oh. But this one is about my operation. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. And the central figure of that is uh, I I did that quite early on. Uh, it's about the second or third thing I did. Mm. Uh, but the central, uh, I, I got partly from Picasso's Guernica. Mm. Uh, but it's not, it's me. We are operated on. So, uh, on the way I think about it, it's a bit like, I think, Frida Kahlo. Mm. Uh, well, I, I'm a bit obsessed by, by my images of myself. <laughs> and why I, I'm not because I, 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 I'm obsessed by myself. Uh, uh, this is some way, how do I fit in the world mm. around me? Yeah, great. That's really, really interesting to hear. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, well done. <laughs> um, I have another question. Um, this question is to Kate Adams. Um, can you tell us, is everyone a potential artist? Okay, I'll do my best. Um, so, I'm going to, I've made notes because I want to quote things and my memory isn't up to um, the whole quote. But, um, so, is everyone a potential artist? Well, I think yes is very much the answer. But then I was thinking, well, Okay, what is an artist? So I thought, I'll, I'll look at some definitions. So I checked it out online, and it said, an artist is a person who creates paintings or drawings as a professional hobby. <laughs> and then it said, informally, a person who habitually practices a specified reprehensible activity. <laughs> like piss artist, for example. Um, so... That was enlightening. Um, but essentially, it's a dedication uh, and skill um, that can be honed over time. So, back to the question. Well, 
I come back to uh, one of my favorite artists, Joseph Beuys. He was a German artist and teacher and theorist of art who was highly influential in international contemporary art in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, his work is really grounded in concepts of humanism, ecology, and social philosophy. He was an amazing environmentalist as well and planted 7,000 oak trees in Castle. And I visited Castle recently, and they're not all oaks, I can tell you. They didn't all survive, but um, they are there. Um, He's regarded uh, very highly, but he famously said in 1973 that every human being is an artist who, from his state of freedom, which is the position of freedom that he experiences at first hand, uh, learns to determine the other positions in the total artwork of the future social order. So for me, um, everyone has the potential uh, to be an artist, um, and Boyce was talking about what he described as uh, a most modern art discipline, the social, sculptural, or, or social architecture, which will only reach fruition, he said, when every living person becomes a creator, a sculptor, or architect of the social organism. So only a conception of art revolutionized to this degree can turn into a politically productive force coursing through every person and shaping history. So what this essentially means is that we can all be creators of things, but also we can be creators of compassion and tolerance and housing and care and communities and our own destinies. And where this falls down is when we are, for whatever reason, dependent on others to provide the contexts, opportunities and environments for this innate creativity to flourish. And I guess that's why I'm here right now um, so we have to bear in mind that most revered artists and philosophers are neurotypical or male or white and so on and it's only now that we're beginning to blur these distinctions and open the way for other voices to frame our cultural spheres and self-determination art and the practice of it generates thinking it forces a contemplation in multiple and extraordinary dimensions. Children, given the right environments, are all artists. They draw the world, they process experience, um, and they inhabit um, and connect with what they are making as it emerges. And I think, actually, that's a prerequisite of any artist. I'm nearly done. Okay. Um, so within this conceptual framework, we can also make stuff. We can make drawings, installations, and performances and happenings. However, many people who go through art school, for example, don't actually end up making things, but they use creativity in other fields. So artistic practice generates thinking, and thinking, thinking generates artistic practice. This is the way that creativity works. Um, it's also one of the reasons that oppressive states try to eliminate creatives and people who think too much. 
we really need to consider why art education has taken such a hammering uh, over the past decade right, and right now. So creativity then is a process. You act, you consider, you see what happens, you respond, you react, and so on. That is what an artist is, and everyone has potential to do that. Um, very often the art is in the making, not in the object. Um, and I have to say that many of the neurodivergent artists uh, and makers with whom we collaborate at Project Artworks are actually free of the burden of the label of artists. They are also blessedly free of all the cultural contexts and baggage that many of us bring to our actions as artists and creators. What matters is connection. Um, uh, connection to everything, connection to materials and to processes, their environment, and whether they're free to explore it. So we pay attention to environments because environments nurture, are able to nurture artists and able to make people fully engage. And sometimes what happens is truly extraordinary. It can sometimes end with a thing, uh, a painting, object, that to others is recognizable as art. Uh, but perhaps for the person who made this, it represents a trace, a trace of their existence, their spirit, and their being. And whether it's art or not is of little significance. And isn't this what all artists want? To leave a trace? So again, I say yes, everyone is a potential artist, but not everyone is given the equity of self-determination in order to become one. Thank you very much. Um, does anyone else want to say anything on that subject? Feel free. <laughs> no pressure, you don't have to. <laughs> I, I want to say something about. Can we? Are we talk both? Both of the. Are we yeah. talking about both of them? Yeah. Because um, the question about why do you, why do I make art? And Chris, you obviously talked about it from very like sort of specific your position. Um, but I guess for me, I make art for myself, but I also make art with other people. Mm. Um, and I think they're kind of. And I and I've always been drawn to that. And it's only recently that I've been starting to think like why do I always collaborate like I always work with people whether it's communities or a friend of mine who I've been working for 10 years and um, I think it kind of connects to what Kate just said about connection um, for me the reason I make art is partly about making connections with people and I think that that's as important as making objects or making things that are visual that people see um, and I think that that's something that is still not quite understood enough in terms of the kind of like arts institutions and galleries is like the purpose of making art cannot, can also be about connecting with people as much as it is about making things that can go in the world that can be seen um, so that was just what yeah. I thought when I was listening Thank you, that was a really nice thought would you like to add anything to that, Dave? Uh, and connections is very important. 
Christian to communicate by art, especially if you have a speech difficulty, you mm, can yeah. communicate a lot yeah. more by artwork than you can by explaining the artwork. Yeah, that's very true. I just wanted to come in, actually, partly to do with Kate's question and also uh, Chris's as well, because I feel like sometimes, yes, everyone can be potential artists um, as long as there's the access to it and there's access to spaces. So I think sometimes we, we forget about, you know, yeah, you know, I could sit at home doing a piece of artwork, right? But if there's actually a space which is allocated and funded with equipment, then you're going to have more people making art and making good art as well. Um, you know, and, and I feel like that seems to be forgotten in the whole equation of being an artist. Um, to come in um, with Chris's question as well um, of why I make art... Um, I have a similar past to Chris, you know, I, I had a stroke 10 years ago um, and then I had like a domino effect of bad health from cancer, having a cardiac arrest and ended up uh, street homeless um, on the streets. And then it got to the stage that I tried to end my own life um, and for me to sort of like try and rebuild my self-resilience, uh, my confidence, um, to try and re-engage um, and talk and share what I was going through because I didn't have the language skills to do that. Um, I found that I could do that through artworks, you know, whether it was photography or spoken word or theatre or film or dance, whatever I tried to put my, my mind to, it gave me that access to start picking myself back up. You know, I, I always say that art saved my life, um, and I truly believe it did, um, because it gave me that, that thing to focus on. It gave me that hope, right? And that's something that we don't have a lot of in this country, is hope. And when you're street homeless, you pretty much have none, um, because there are so many barriers there stopping you. So I found that by being able to create something, whether it was a stick man for two minutes or whether it was a, an opera I wrote, it meant that I wasn't thinking about all the other shit that I was going through. Um, and, and I think sometimes art can be that simple that it helps you escape the realities of real life. And if you've had brain injury and other um, social problems and barriers, then art can really help you engage. So, yeah. Thank you. I think you've um, said that really well. That's something that we, you know, promote at Headway in our studio is just to be get lost in that in that studio and um, just not work, care or worry about what's happening on the outside or what's happened to you. Um, so I think you've, yeah, that's, you know, explained that really well. Um, and again, with the communication issues that some people have and they lose their, their voices um, through strokes and accidents, um, that's another wonderful way of communicating through painting and pictures to express themselves. So it's so, it's so important. Thank you for that. Um, 
So, um, so Dave, David, still on you. <laughs> um, have a question for you. Does art need to be beautiful? Wow. Um, so this is actually a really quite difficult question to answer. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's probably the best way. But so it's sort of like you, we've got to flip this on its head, right? Because who decides on whether it's beautiful or not, right? Yeah. Who? Is it the artist? Is it the viewer? Is it the general public? Is it whoever is out there? So for me, I make quite dark, hard-hitting work around homelessness, addiction, mental health, suicide, right? I make this because it's stuff that I've lived through and, and, and I'm talking from my heart, right? To me, I wouldn't say it's beautiful art because for me, it's just a narrative of me trying to express something, right? Whether the viewer sees that as a beautiful artwork, that's entirely up to them, right? And, and I think this is the thing, when thinking about the context of beautiful art, We've got to sort of like say, sorry, I, I was going to swear and say fuck it, but um, I'm going to swear, <laughs> fuck it, right? Um, and actually stop thinking about the artwork as, uh, I guess, a sort of like a thing of beauty, right? Because it has to be a thing of what's come from you. And surely that is beauty, mm. right? Yeah. Whether it's pain, whether it's sort of like, like the, the amazing picture of Chris is there of his stroke, right? His journey, his, his, you know, there's so much pain in that, so much grief and anger, but also there's that beauty of seeing Chris understand that within his artwork, right? And, and surely that's all we're asking, you know, is the fact that we are wanting great art in the world, but who says that every single piece of art isn't great, isn't beautiful, right? It's, it's people's opinion. Mm. And, and, I, and I think it's that simple. Like, you know, I can't stand Damien Hirst's work. I, I think it's ugly, right? <laughs> but it doesn't mean that it's not beautiful in yeah. the context of what it is. Mm. So, yeah, I, th I think that's probably the easiest and <laughs> shortest yeah. answer there is. But I'll put it hand over. No, that's, that's really true. It really is somebody, an individual's interpretation of what it evokes for them and their feelings and what it means to them. So, yeah, totally agree. Does anyone else want to say anything on that as well? Yeah, I might just chip in. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought that was really eloquently said, David. But I, I think what you were saying is actually we misunderstand what beauty is in a way. It's not about being pretty. It's about a truth and and that's what's beautiful and and what i what i well, what i love about art and and I, I love the question can anybody be an artist and, and and kate's saying they can which is great but anybody can appreciate art as well and and art is a language and it doesn't exist on its own and it's so it's still, i like being on the other end of that communication you know i like i like ex appreciating artists but so I, I think, and we all know art is an illusion. And so really, you know, the, the, for me, the, the, most, the best art is, 
you know, if you have an essential truth wrapped up in a beautiful lie. And I think that's what it's about. Thank you very much. That was that. Um, uh, and I think in art, you can do anything you want to do in the painting. It doesn't have to be truthful of the world. It's what is in your head. Uh, and as well, you can put the troubles that are in your head in the painting. And that makes the troubles in your head a little bit less. Yeah, and and also, um, I mean, in the making and in, I think beauty is in connection, and I agree, uh, truth is beauty as well. Um, I don't think art is necessarily innately beautiful. It's the... Um, or should be, or can be, even. I think it's the it's the connection with the viewer and the uh, subjective impact. But also, for for me, often the space in the studio, collaborating with people, um, sometimes something happens which is beautiful, like a glimpse towards a colour that is uh, done with an eye movement which makes a choice that I, that has not happened before. Or somebody says a word that they've never used before and that and it's an extraordinary moment for a, a parent or a, a carer who's with them. That is beautiful. Mm. Um, but I think, obviously, there's other, many other things, but I'm not sure art is the place where beauty exists. Yeah, go ahead. You just, um, <laughs> thank you, Kate, because you actually <laughs> just reminded me of something which I, I think is really, really important. Because it's also what it does as well. So, for example, I'm going to give an example. Uh, I, I teach um, at a homeless shelter um, or homeless centre uh, every week. And about three years ago, there was this uh, guy who used to come in and he'd have his piece of paper just sat in front of him. And for weeks, he wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't even touch it. He'd literally just sit there staring at this piece of paper. Wouldn't talk to anyone in the homeless centre or anything like that. And then for him to just keep coming. And, 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 and I kept thinking, why, why is he coming? Like, I don't get it. I, I just didn't get why he kept coming to this class and just sitting there and staring at this piece of paper. And on the about, I think it was about the fourth or the fifth week, he suddenly started drawing these little boxes, put his pen down and said, thank you so much, that day was great, and then walked out. And for me, that, that is exactly what the beauty of art is. It's not, it is that connection. It is that, um, that taking part, that process of how somebody works something out in their brain, and then suddenly this piece of magic just happens. And then to find out that was the first time he'd actually spoken to anyone in the whole hostel was just, wow. like, mind-blowing. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, Thank you. What, what my take on it yeah. is that, uh, uh, in some ways, uh, we have to think about... Uh, you know the acronym WEIRD. Uh, mm. is worse than a white uh, male uh, uh, 
uh, I believe uh, that's what the tradition we're coming from. Mm. But that tradition is starting to break down, and women are more involved, uh, and, uh, and black people, um, people yeah. of different races are more involved. Uh, mm. We're still working through that. And yeah. disability and neurodisability is perhaps one of the last mm. uh, things that we need to work for even more. Uh, but we need to have the, the conception that uh, the culture of what we had in the past was very weird. And we need to... It's not that the culture was right, it's weird. <laughs> and then it's up to us to make it better. Yeah. Uh, we're not doing that just for disabled people yeah. to pat them on the head. We're doing that because it makes art better for everyone. That's really good. That's so true. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you, guys. Um, we're going to have a short break um, in a couple of minutes, but we've got, also got a couple of questions from the audience. Yeah. So we just thought... Ooh, you don't want that. I'm going to run over here. Um, so we just thought maybe we'll just open it up and maybe grab some questions from some of the audience members really quickly before we have a break and get interactive on our tables. So does anyone... Have any questions? You're in the right place. <laughs> um, kind of, uh, I had this ready in my mind, but um, the, the last kind of answer kind of follows on quite nicely. Um, but I'm JJ. I just want to ask um, the panel, uh, how conscious are you of un unconscious bias and tokenism in the arts world and arts establishment? It would be really interesting to hear. Thank you. Thank you. Um, does anyone want to take that no, question? No, it happens. <laughs> How conscious are we? Uh, uh, JJ, good evening. <clears throat> Highly conscious. It's very evident. It's not, it's not even unconscious bias, it's just bias. Um, and I think that there is a sort of evolving, changing awareness. I mean, Project Artworks has been going for 20 years and um, we've been knocking on the doors of the temples of culture for a long time and I think there is a, a, an opening up uh, partly because, um, you know, it's interesting. It's good. It's... Um, different stories of what it is to live and to make art and uh, it creates relevancy for audiences and I think audiences are the people who are making the change not necessarily institutions but institutions are recognising that uh, they need to reflect and uh, represent their audiences so I think there is bias uh, I think we've got a long way to go. I think certainly, as Chris said, disability and neurodiversity is at the bottom of the pile. We're about 30 years at least behind um, 
yeah, race, uh, politics, and um, diversity. So we've still got a long way to go, but uh, we're there's a slow movement, wouldn't you say? And I, I think what you're doing with uh, the Turner Prize and documental, for instance, and other things uh, is very important. And as well, you could try the creating the Aurora Academy. And, uh, that's the start of a lot of things going on at the moment. Just very quickly, and I, uh, it's not, it's not a done deal, and it's not over. Um, I mean, it's only five years since a uh, head of exhibition somewhere told me that she thought it was really disrespectful to show the work of people with learning disabilities in the same building as uh, a well-known artist. Disrespectful to that artist. So, we we still have a way to go. I think the, a really interesting thing, though, JJ, is perceptions change all the time. So, so, so it, it's, it, it, it's never a static situation. And, and we, we, we tend to think that our moment, that it's like fixed, but it's not. It's always moving. And one of the things about the, the best artists is they, they're kind of just like a bit ahead of that moment. And I remember Phila de Barlow, who is a, is a very good sculptor, um, who taught for a long time and really got absolutely no credit for her work at all until she was like in her 70s. In fact, she'd have people come around to do a studio visit to come and see her, her work. And she always knew it had been a disaster when they said, God, I really love your sink. Because, <laughs> you know, they just weren't interested in the work at all. And then suddenly, like she's 70 years old, she's retired, and her work suddenly becomes incredibly important or recognised by the establishment. And suddenly this person who's been largely ignored is representing Great Britain at the Venice Biennale. And she couldn't have imagined that 10 years earlier. And so I, I think that sometimes we make the mistake thinking it's a static situation, it's a moving situation. That's why I think my, my fellow panel members are all sort of amazing in what they're doing because they are, they are making sure that there is a movement and it is changing, and Chris is absolutely right. Uh, I think we're at, at a moment of flux, uh, and I think we'll, we'll see a different set of criteria about and, and a different way of looking at the world, you know, in the next five or ten years. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. But and also, I don't think about bias so much. I think it's just more about what people are interested in and what pe- what what people are motivated in <clears throat> by and who. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if you look at the profile of the majority of people that work in particularly big cultural organisations like this one and others, you know, I don't really have to spell it out. It's like, it's quite clear that there's very, uh, you know, clear kind of, you know, mainly it's in arts education and I work in it and I think I'm a bit of an outlier because usually it's like white women of a certain age. That's, That's generally what it is. Um, and I just think that that's where it's about the people that are working in certain positions and it's about having um, a range of different people that are able to kind of at least collaborate within that and have power and have agency. So I think for me the whole thing about unconscious bias, like I've done the training on it, uh, like I did unconscious bias training at 
um, Goldsmiths after an institu- like institutional racism incident, and then I'm there doing unconscious bias training. I'm like, what, what is this about? It's like, it, for me, it's completely not the right way of looking at it. It's about what are people interested in, what are they motivated by, and therefore, and then how are then resources allocated towards that, especially when it's public money. So I think, to me, that's like much more the kind of like thing that I'm interested in looking at within institutions and arts organisations. Yeah, and I just really wanted, and I'll do this really quick because I know we're, we're short on time. <laughs> Obviously, I look at homelessness, right? And, 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 I, and I stand up and fight to try and get as many homeless artists work seen as possible throughout the UK. And when I first set up the festival in 2016, it took me 18 months to get a venue to even actually host us, right? Nobody would even like open their doors to me. And, 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 and that, that shouldn't be the case. So yes, we see it on a daily basis, like the homeless arts community has doors shut in their face every single day worldwide, right? And, 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 and I'm glad that I work in this field um, and, and have the access to try and open those doors. I mentioned I'm an unfunded festival, right? That says it all. Right? We've never been able to get funding for the festival because nobody wants homeless arts within their venues. Um, and, and, and that hopefully will change. I know the Barb can now have uh, people uh, who are homeless uh, doing arts here. So it's slowly starting to change, but we've got a long way to go. A long, long way to go. Thank you very much. Give a round of applause as well. JJ, you gave us a big question there. So I'm going to um, continue with the questions to the panel, panellists. We're on question four. And um, who decides what what art is? And that's for you, Will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, me, obviously. (laughs) Um, Who decides what art is? Actually, it is, it's me. And it's JJ, and it's you, and it's everybody in this room uh, to decide what it is. So, you know, if you look over there, over our shoulders, to those lights in the conservatory, are they just nice lights which you could buy at Habitat, or are they a sculpture by Noguchi? You know, what are they? You can choose, I can choose. Are they an artwork, or are they just something super functional? And, and I think that we tend to forget that's, you know, we have a power. And, and we have um, an agency to decide what we think art is and what art isn't. And, and you know, I, it's always it's a, it's a difficult question, right? But yeah. but because obviously it's art tends you know tends taken taken in by the establishment and it's commodified and a, a business is built around it and careers are built around it. But you know, I, I suppose I think a bit about the the, the story of Siesta Gates who. He's an artist I know a little bit. He's an African-American artist who was brought up in Chicago. Um, poor family. He's the ninth child. He has eight older sisters, and his dad tarred roofs, and his mum was a primary school teacher. And he, he did pretty well at school, and he um, went to university and became a town planner. And he taught town planning. And he got, he got uh, a job at the university. And at the weekends, he, um, just to, to relax, he liked to make pottery. 
and and um, and he'd make plates and bowls. I don't think he made any rhinos, but you know. And then every month he'd go to a county fair and he'd sell his plates and his bowls. And people would say, Fiesta, you know, there'd be like $5 or $4, and people would go, well, Fiesta, I really like your plate, um, but I'll give you $3. And he'd go, well, look, I made it with my head, my hand, and my heart, and really I'd rather just give it to you than haggle. You know, I don't really, it's not what it's about. And he, so he got fed up with this, and to be honest, they were only worth $5. Um, and um, so he decided that he would, he would, um, he would stop selling his plates and his bowls that he made in his little pottery studio um, and he would actually create an exhibition of them in Chicago and uh, so he rented this little space a little um, art space a little gallery space which was literally the size of the stage we're on now and he um, put some shelving up and he put all his plates and his bowls and his jugs uh, in, in, in the gallery and he had an exhibition um, Except he, did, he didn't say it was by Siesta Gates. He said this work was being presented by an artist called uh, Soji Yamaguchi. <laughs> I, I know. And Soji Yamaguchi actually was a conflation of two names. One was Soji Hamada, who was a great Japanese ceramicist. And the other one was Yamaguchi, which is an area in Japan in which ceramics are taught and made. And he put the two things together and figured the Americans would never work it out. <laughs> <laughs> Which they didn't. Um, so he has this big show of, of all his stuff, uh, and um, and it, it, you know it's amateurish. It's not you know he, he would say it's not particularly good um, in terms of you know you know something you might see out of I don't know Wedgwood or something. But you know it, it was his work, and he has this exhibition of this stuff. Oh, and he made a backstory for Soji Yamaguchi as well. So when you walked into this space. Uh, there was a whole backstory about yeah, um, this, this chap. That, that he was this great Japanese master who'd come over to America to work with the black clay of Mississippi, fell in love with a woman, uh, got married, and eventually took her back to the village he was brought up in Japan. And tragically for him and his wife, but very conveniently for Fiesta, he got killed in a car crash. <laughs> Oh, no. No, but he didn't really, because he didn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> so there's a show of... So he has this show, he has a backstory, and after one hour of this exhibition, every single item has been sold. Yeah. And not one item did anybody ask for a dime off. And he wasn't selling the same items, which he was selling for 4 or $5 in the county fair, he was selling the same items in his exhibition for 4 and five hundred dollars, and people bought them because they thought they were by Soji Yamaguchi, <laughs> and they believed the backstory, and they were delighted with their purchases. And eventually, they found out what had happened. That there was no Soji Yamaguchi. There was only this town planner who liked doing pottery at the weekends called Thiasta Gates. And the art world approached Thiasta and said, "Thiasta Gates, you are fantastic. In fact, you're an artist." And he went, oh, God, am I? Right, okay, marvellous. And so with that money, he went and bought a run-down shack on the south side of Chicago. And if anybody knows anything about Chicago, it's an area of de- deprivation. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's uh, principally African-American, and uh, it's, a, it's a place that Thiasa really felt he wanted to make a contribution to. Uh, and so he, he moved into this shack, and it had been, been boarded up for like 20 years, 
uh, and uh, but it was what, what he could afford. And he started to rip all the stuff out of it because he was going to do it up. He called it a gut rehab. And he started taking all this stuff out. And it's just, it's just well, it's crap. You know, it's rubbish. You know, we, we saw the stuff we'd put in a skip. But he decided each item held within it a story. So he started to formalize some of those objects. So there was an old fire hose in the basement, which was just for, you know, covered in rat's urine and, and uh, dust and uh, rubble. And he's just, he just recoiled it into a coil. Then he found a bottom of a drawer, which is trashed in the kitchen, and got the drawer bottom out and nailed the, nailed the hose to the drawer bottom and then created out of some ba- old balustrading going up the stairs, he created a frame. So he just sort of formalised this, this rubbish, really. And he then sold this as an artwork because he now understood himself to be an artist. And he sold it, and it, it was bought for £120,000. And then he did it again and again and again, selling more and more of this stuff from gut rehabs to what to, to wealthy collectors. He said, to, he said, I can't believe how wet rich folks get about this stuff. <laughs> uh, I know. Uh, yes, that's what he said. And, and then he bought another house and did another gut rehab and another house and did another, all going down Southside. And with each house, he gave them to the community. Mm-hmm. So he, he made a house called uh, the Black Listening House, which had music in it. And he made the Black Filmmaker's House, which had film-making equipment and, and films in it and, and a, a library full of old magazines, um, principally around African-American culture. And then he starts working with Mayor Rana Manuel, who was Obama's running mate, to create uh, youth centres and develop a studio where he put young people in there. And so one guy, was trans- who wasn't really an artist, who was a town planner, was transforming the south side of Chicago by leveraging this concept of art, mm. by deciding, him deciding, what is art, yeah. and, and persuading the audience that that was art. And so, you know, and that Kate sort of mentioned about how art isn't taught in schools anymore, and it, it's just so sad, because art really can change the world, and it can do amazing things, and it's much more than being beautiful. It's much more than being decorative. Mm. You know, it, it, it is the thing which makes us human. It's the thing which, which enables us to express our humanity. And so, uh, what is art is it's anything you want it to be, is the answer to your question. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Will? Thank you. (laughs) Um, So we have um, the last question, question five. This one is to Ali. Um, Should... Um, whose art should be displayed in art galleries? Okay, I'm like Kate, I've, I've written things down. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been, th- yeah, because we had this sort of initial conversation about this um, a couple of weeks ago and it's just been going around in my head and the more that I've thought about it, the more sort of complicated it's become as a, as a question, but I've tried to just boil it down to one thing for me, which is I think it's basically a political question. Um, It's political because when you say should, what we're really talking about is what art do we value? Uh, What art do we want to highlight? Um, Who do we want to make visible? What careers do we want to push? 
that's really for me the nub of the question. It's about um, representation. And art is made by people, so if we're representing their art, then we're representing them as people. So that's kind of um, the first thing that I was thinking about. And then that then leads us to the next part of that, really, which is it then becomes dependent on who's in charge. So who's in charge of galleries? Uh, And that's like the trustees. So the trustees of museums, of galleries, if they're public institutions, directors curators, learning curators or engagement people basically the people who have got power and the people that make choices and judgments about what uh, art should be displayed in galleries and what is good art and without sort of going into too much uh, kind of history about that um, I think that that is something that we have to look at in context of history and what's the history of galleries what's the history of museums they're essentially tied often to colonial projects to empire to privilege and they're essentially based on values and interests that tend to be able-bodied white male european so i think that that's the background and the structure to this question really which is that galleries have tended to be Shown, show art that is in that image that represents those interests and those values um, and that's because they're the people in the positions of power choose to show that art thinking about it from my perspective of what art do kind of I think should be shown in a gallery my first response to that was kind of like anyone's art could be shown in galleries and should be shown in galleries but I'll just give you a little kind of anecdote really based on where I work uh, autograph because um, I think this is something is I always use as a way to sort of describe autograph and what I think is really at the kind of core of of, of the the organisation and the project. And autographs didn't start out as a gallery; it started out as an association of black photographers. Um, but now it is a gallery. It's an inst- it's a small institution. I would say it's in Rivington Place in Shoreditch. We have two. We have a big building. It was designed by David Ajay. We have a lot of people that come there. Uh, so we're really now a gallery in, in the same way that the Barbican is. Um, but the case that Autograph made when it first started was a really interesting kind of wager, which was basically that given the increasing population of black people and people of colour in the UK, this is in the late 1980s, 1988, uh, there should be um, an increasing share of public funds that go towards representing those artists and people from those communities, okay? And that, that's not just out of charity, that's connected to rights, because if we look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and we look at the bit about art and culture, it says, everyone has the right freely to participate in the cultural life of the community and to enjoy the arts. So that's something that's enshrined in human rights and in human rights legislation. So this, this idea that public funds should support Uh, everyone, all people it makes sense that a share of that should equally represent people of different uh, backgrounds and different uh, ability, uh, different races, cultures, etc thanks I've I've got more Um, before I came I looked at the website of Scope, which is the charity that's uh, 
campaigns on behalf of people with disabilities. And in the UK currently, this is their statistic, 14.1 million people with a disability in the UK. So that, that obviously covers a lot of different kinds of disabilities, etc. But that's 20% of the population in the UK. So imagine if 20% of all arts funding went into supporting disabled artists and communities. Imagine what that would look like. We would be in a pretty different place, really, wouldn't we? And it's absolutely not the case, right? I mean, I don't know how many uh, exhibitions there have been of, by disabled artists, particularly in big institutions. You probably know a bit more about that, Kate. Very few. Very few. So it's definitely not 20%. So I think that that's... If we're going to talk about representation, then we need to kind of get into these conversations, actually, about power and about money and about funding, because that, I think has the impact on what happens. Um, the other thing is that I think um, from working in a gallery, uh, galleries are, are too often concerned with the object, the art object, and also my big kind of bugbear is about how ob art objects uh, relate to this idea of quality, like what is a good piece of art. Um, and I think that the reason I find that so problematic is because it creates the sep a separation in galleries and in, particularly in institutions between art, like good art, high-quality art, and inclusion, which is this kind of other thing where basically people who have be, been given labels like disabled people, hard-to-reach, disadvantaged, looked-after, refugee... That's where their art happens. It happens in the inclusion, access stuff. And then you have the good art, the proper art, the artist, and it happens there. And it, it's actually something that I think you see uh, policed in a way that is very physical. Um, most education spaces and galleries tend to be in strange little back pockets around the corner. They're almost always higher spaces, which means they have to be kind of scrubbed down and cleaned, usually by the people that work in those jobs. So there's a kind of segregation often that I see uh, in the arts and in galleries between kind of good art that is displayed in the gallery and inclusion stuff that happens a bit around the back and in the side. Um, lastly, the, the last point I have about this question that I was thinking about a lot is um, what does it mean for people to show their artwork in galleries? Because I think often we don't necessarily in interrogate that um, enough. Why is it important to them? Um, because it might be important to them based on the work that they're showing, the things that are going on the walls, and that might be something that is important to them. But in a lot of the work that I do, particularly kind of in the programme at Autograph, which is working with uh, marginalised groups, as I mentioned before, people that tend to be given all these different labels... I think that there's often a bigger picture as to why people want to have their work in galleries that people who work in galleries don't often really fully appreciate. You know, being recognised and celebrated, being visible as a person as well as your work being visible, um, feeling, being in a place and occupying a place that feels safe, that you feel uh, you can be social in, that you can be comfortable in, that you can be together with people because you probably experience a lot of isolation. And I think that those things should be absolutely as important as the objects that people make or that go on the wall. But I think that often galleries are not actually built 
to really deal with that or to recognize that quality can be about relationships, it can be about connection as much as it can be about things that people make. Um, and the last thing um, that I was going to say is that I think that the environments, which is connected to that, is I think that the environments of galleries need to change in order to really recognize this complexity of what, why different people make art um, and what, how it looks and how it's manifested. Um, and um, I think that people's rights need to be respected in, this, in these spaces, and I think that that is connected to all these issues around uh, the, the kind of resources that get given towards different kinds of art that is made and different people in these spaces. And the last thing is I think that the, this barrier or this kind of gap between art and like inclusion or participation or whatever we want to call it um, is often leads to a form of like charity like this is like some charity thing that we're all here and it's like disabled artists and I think that that is really problematic that's what continues the kind of like inequalities in whose art is shown in galleries and I think that we need to engage with people in terms of their difference on the basis of equality and I think when we can start to do that will move past uh, a kind of status quo that we have at the moment where we have the majority of exhibitions are by the good professional artists and then there's this kind of swimming around of lots of people in like the Tate Exchange fifth floor uh, or in various other kind of like inclusion environments. Um, and I think it will be, as Chris was saying before, it will, um, it will, it's not just in order to be diverse and tick boxes is actually to create a more engaging, more interesting and a more representative cultural field where we can see ourselves in that space and that can be said for anyone rather than just a very small number of people in society. Thank you, Ali. Partly, uh, another way of saying what you just said, uh, before this, uh, Will came down to Hebron, uh, and the question he asked about this event, which is a very good question, was what do you want to get from this event? Uh, and from my point of view, <laughs> it might not be other people, but it's mine. It is, from me, what I would like to see from this event is the Barbican as an exhibition of disabled and neurodiverse art. Thank you, Chris. That's I suspect, very well I put. I suspect I ought to say something to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely, Chris. And that's something we should talk more about and actually make happen. Uh, Ali, I, I, don't, I don't want to sort of put words in your mouth about what you're saying. But I, it, would it be fair to say that actually it's about just being clearer about what the purpose of exhibitions are which is, is not necessarily 
to uh, you know create some sort of uh, you know amazing idea of sublime human effort but actually they're, they're storytelling devices and 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 if, if you accept that then you open up your mind to well let's tell some different stories because at the moment we're just telling the same stories over and over again and maybe if we took the concept that it's you know it's you know it you know these are stories we're trying to tell then that would people would, would encourage people to look beyond the stories they've already told to new stories which haven't been heard yet is that is that a reasonable way of thinking about it uh yeah <laughs> i i would add well i mean i would add issues like i think the exhibitions are thing ways of thinking about an issue um, stories, and and sto stories are really important in how we communicate and tell uh, about issues and about what we care about. And um, so, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. And I've got one final question for you, Ali. Is, is, I was really interested because you're also a, a teacher at Goldsmiths. How, how does your, um, your, your approach to exhibition making an autograph translate to how you are shaping the program at Goldsmiths? Um, well, so I, I'm not a curator, like, so I don't create the exhibitions at, at Autograph. So, I mean, I have my own battles, <laughs> you know, but it's much smaller, so it's a bit more easy to kind of, like, think about that. But I guess we did, we did an exhibition with, with uh, Chris and with with Headway, so I've done some things that I'd say cu uh, curatorial, but um, I'm not sure yet. I think I've not really been at Goldsmiths for long enough because I've only been there for sort of three years, and um, it's huge. And I think what Kate was mentioning about kind of art education, um, I think it is in a place that is quite critical, um, and I think there's quite a lot of stagnation in art schools and I think we I run um, an online course called Pilot for um, artists and educators through through Autograph and it was started at the beginning of the pandemic and it's been really amazing because a lot of the people who've been involved in that have been people <clears throat> most of whom are neurodiverse um, in different ways um, or their experience of mainstream art education um, meant that they've had to leave because, like, there just wasn't the support. Like, there wasn't the support there for someone who needed um, kind of uh, help to be able to flourish in th those environments. And um, so I think I'm probably trying to bring in things into that environment um, around um, how to open up ideas of what it is to make art um, and also what it means to crit and to look at art because there's like Goldsmiths has got this a lot of art schools have this like really like um, aggressive kind of like crit thing where it's like everyone comes in the room and it's like right we're going to sit down and then we're going to like be in complete silence and then it's like everyone's going to look at your work really intently and then they're going to kind of like wait and then they're going to say something really intellectual or like really over the top and then like look at you and then you've got to... And it's like, why does it need to be like some sort of grilling, right? And I think that that for me is reflected, is physicalised in a lot of gallery spaces. Like gallery spaces can be really uh, like hostile environments for people 
Um, yeah, I agree. And I think that the, the big um, question here, or the big gap, is that not all artists have the same level of uh, need, for example, for support. So one of the ways in which people have been excluded is that galleries think that it's all a level playing field out there, and it's not. Because actually to create equality, you have to recognize difference and adjust what you do in order to um, meet needs and therefore create uh, equality. So um, I think there's a long way to go for galleries and institutions to understand how they need to support artists to, to uh, make and exhibit work. Um, there are many supported studios. There's Action Space with Cheryl and Barbara over there. Uh, amazing organisations that that um, are there to create an alternative art school because you know art schools operate on a neurotypical construct of academic achievement in order to be able to even get into them. Um, and so that whole arena of uh, potential education and the nurturing of potential is, uh, doesn't exist for many people. Uh, that's essentially what Project Artworks does, um, is to create this environment that enables people to discover something. Um, and it's uh, remarkable how uh, quickly that can happen and what, what, what people can actually make given the right environment. And I wouldn't say that it's a matter of institutions having to set up those sorts of studios, but they need to work in collaboration with, um, with these alternative spaces in order to find artists. Just to add to this as well, um, and, and I'm really interested in the storytelling um, and of an exhibition. And for a community like mine, um, the homeless community, um, it's very difficult for us to be able to be given spaces to storytell, right? When we're not even allowed to come in the front doors of a lot of places because we're turned away by the way we look or the way we smell. And, and, I, and I feel it's really difficult to then have the voice, the confidence to come to people like you, Will, and say, give me a space to exhibit and storytell my work and talk about my life and talk about my community when there's so many barriers put up. You know, if, if you imagine, right, you know, for an able-bodied person, it's quite easy to walk into a space and be seen as on par with everyone else. But if you have a disability or you come from a minority or you come from a vulnerable group or homeless communities, then you're seen as below and you're not taken as seriously. Like I was saying, it took me a year and a half to be able to get a venue to give me a space to showcase homeless arts. I know what it felt like the first time I had my own ex exhibition, you know, even though only four people came to my press night on the first evening, I was so bloody proud that I got my work seen, you know, and, 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 and I felt good. It made me stand tall. It made me stand, you know, I was 
fucking proud, like, you know, I'd come from being on the streets to having my work in a bloody gallery, right? And, 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 and that's all we're asking for venues to actually come outside their little ivory towers and instead of, like, saying, you come to us, well, how about you bloody lot come to us and actually find us in our environments, our communities, and say... I love what you're doing. Come and tell your stories. Come and show your art in our spaces. Because it doesn't exist at the moment. And not only say that, instead of saying, right, now go to Arts Council and get the funding to do this show, fuck that. I will pay you as a venue and come, give you the money, put your show in, promote it, etc., etc., etc. It has to be a lot easier. Because at the moment, it just doesn't work for my community and, and your community and your community. You know, how can you get somebody who struggles to talk to come and pre present and say, give me a show? It, it, it's, it's near on impossible. So, yeah, that, that, sorry. I, Thank you. Thank you very much. Those are fantastic points. Um, we're only going to have one question from the audience, I'm afraid, because we're running out of time. Um, Amelia, do you have somebody there? Does anyone have a question? Final do you, question? Yeah, anyone have a question? We are very conscious of time, and I know also some of the panellists need to leave at the time. So, no pressure. This is the closing question. Um, <laughs> end it on a good note. Fellow artist, Lemzy. Hi guys, how you doing? Um, I just want to ask, with how technology seems to be moving really, really quickly, how do you think that the traditional forms of art are going to be able to fuse with what new forms of technology and art are going to look like in the future? Because stuff like NFT seems to be a big thing that people are talking about, uh, just digital art spaces as well. Do you feel like the traditional art spaces are going to be able to factor into that or they're going to have to do something drastic to change? Um, I think it's just like anything in art. It's going to be a phase that will just gradually become part of the, the scene. I don't think it's going to eradicate the need to have physical uh, objects in space or to uh, for all the other aspects of making art that we've described, like social sculpture and how we um, collaborate um, with communities we have to remember that that's actually at quite a level of... Uh, we were talking, I was talking with JJ about digital poverty, for example. That is still a really big thing. And so it is just a, a phase and another aspect of art. I don't think it's going to eradicate um, the practice of other forms of art. I just think it's going to be absorbed as into one of them. That's my, my feeling. What do you think, everyone else? I agree, I think it will be absorbed, but I do feel that the um, the bigger nationals and, and organizations, they need to keep up, um, because I think like if they don't, then the younger generation especially are gonna walk away from these institutions, and, and if, our, if, their, if their digital work isn't being seen by these institutions, they'll, they'll go somewhere else, they'll set up their own places. You know, just, probably why I set up the festival in the first place because nobody would give me the spaces um, and access so I was like well I'll just do it myself and, and, I, and I feel like that 
is becoming more apparent now just when you're looking at stuff that's happening in the environment and people standing up saying, I'm not taking this no more um, and creating their own movements. Um, so, yeah, I think they, they have to change um, and keep up. I think that's true, but uh, the danger is um, it's the, not the media. We need to not concentrate on the media. It's the feeling behind the media that you're trying to communicate. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, and I want to thank all my panellists today. Um, it was a fantastic discussion. Um, so thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nothing Concrete. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you would like to find out more about Headway East London, please visit their website, www.headwayeastlondon.org. And to find out more about our community events, please visit our website, www.barbican.org.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.